Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. We're continuing in our series entitled Some Assembly Required. And this is a series on marriage. We're going through in the month of January. And the title of the message this morning is In the Beginning There Was Marriage. Please enjoy. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2 this morning, Genesis chapter 2, we're continuing in our series on marriage that's entitled, Some Assembly Required. Uh, We're going to be in this series throughout the whole month of January, and it is our intention to build better marriages, to build better families, stronger families, stronger husbands, stronger wives, and uh, the, uh, the family is very, very important. Do you have your place in Genesis chapter 2? I'm going to ask you one last time to stand in respect and reverence to the Word of God. We're going to read our scripture, pray, and then sit back down. We're just going to read two verses this morning in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse number 24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The title of the message this morning is, In the Beginning There Was Marriage. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all the mighty blessings you've given this church, you've given our people. Lord, we thank you for uh, just the opportunity we have to come and hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you'd be with our minds and our our hearts, Lord. Help us to clear our minds of distraction. And uh, I pray that we soften our hearts to receive the good seed of the Word of God. Bless our families. Bless our marriages. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, let's talk about the word good. You know, what are some things that we would consider good in our lives? I believe that my marriage is a good thing. I believe that my kids are good sometimes, uh, most of the time. I'd hope so. I mean, we can have good health. We can go on a good date uh, with our spouse. Uh, We can go on a good vacation. I mean, uh, it's a lot of things we would consider in our lives to be good. A man came to Jesus and said, Lord, uh, he said, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why callest thou me good? Um, thou, thou know there is no one good but God. Now, I want to say first off, this is not Jesus denying his deity, but rather he's asking this young man to reflect on the question that he just asked Jesus. Basically, he's saying, do you understand that there is nobody good but God? And Jesus is trying to get this rich ruler to understand that if I'm good, it's not because I'm a good person, it's because I'm a good God. Jesus isn't denying his deity. And then he proceeds to prove to this young man that he is not as good as he thinks he is. We get this idea from Scripture that man is not good. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nothing good can come from man. So if you have anything good in your life, it did not come from you. The only thing good in your life came from God. 
This concept is taught in the book of James where it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Jesus tried to teach this rich young ruler that you, in fact, are not good, but God is good. And I want to tell you today, Christian, I want to remind us is that if you have anything good in your life, it came from God. Your marriage came from God. The family that you have comes from God. Your kids came from God. Your health came from God. Your job came from God. All these good things that you have, but it's not just physical things. Your salvation came from God. Uh, The joy that you have, the peace you experience, the comfort that you need, all this comes from God. I want to tell you today that God is in the good business. He is in the good business. He is the good shepherd. He has the good gifts. He has the good seed that turns into the good fruit. All things work together for His good. He began a good work in us. God has the good blessings. He has the good rewards. The wisdom that comes down from heaven is good. The Lord is good to those who wait. The name of the Lord is good. His loving kindness is good. His mercy is good. The Bible says His hands are filled with good things. His judgments are good. God is so good. We sing songs this morning about the goodness of God. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. I want to let you know this morning just a little secret that God has always been good. From before time began, before the foundations of the world, until eternity after time is no more, God is good to me and to you. And the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is coming back one day. He'll split the eastern sky open. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus is coming back because Jesus is good. One day Jesus is going to rapture the church and He's taking the church out of here so we won't experience the tribulation. And He's doing that because God is a good God. He's good. He gave us the church. You understand that the church is the closest thing to heaven we can have this side of eternity. And He gave that to us because He is good. Jesus was born of a virgin because He was good. Jesus died on a cross because He is good. Jesus was resurrected from the grave because He is good. And He allows the righteous deeds that He uh, performed in His life to be credited to our account through faith because He is good. From the beginning of time until after time is over, God is good. This precious book, which we call the good book, from cover to cover, every chapter, every verse, every truth, every paragraph tells us of the goodness of God. Your Bible is replete with the goodness of God. And really, you don't have to look very far to find the goodness of God. You can turn to the very first book, to the very first chapter, to the very first few verses of Scripture, and you'll see the goodness of God on full display. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God stepped out and said, let there be light. And he saw the light and said that it was good. Light's a good thing. You don't believe that light is a good thing? Try getting ready and coming to church with your eyes closed. And you'll know real quick, light is a good thing. After all, the Bible tells us that God is light. Jesus said, I am the light. And when we get saved, we become the light to a dark world. A couple of days later, God made the seas and He looked at the seas and He said, you know what, this is good too. Last I checked, water is a good thing. Try living without it sometimes. But you know, water also represents the Holy Spirit. It represents the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. In that same day, He created the vegetation, the trees, and the fruit. And He looked at it and said, that's good too. Fruit's a good thing. You know what my favorite thing is? If you get me a hot, what they call a cat head biscuit, and, and it's, you, you, you open it up and it's still steaming. You put a little butter on that biscuit and then you put some plum jelly. I love plum jelly. You put some plum jelly on that thing and oh, it's so great. Fruit is a good thing. But you know what the best fruit is? The best fruit is spiritual fruit. The best fruit is, is spiritual fruit where, where a, a sinner comes to accept Christ as his or her personal Savior and gets redeemed. The best fruit is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that, that fills and fills our lives with richness. The next day, God separated the light from the darkness and He called the light day and the darkness He called night and He said, that's good too. Day reminds us, a day is a time where we work. A day is a time where we get stuff done because the Bible says the night cometh when no man can work. But you know, He created the first day to go to the last day. There's a day coming that is called the day of the Lord. It's called the day of wrath, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It has many names throughout Scripture. Zephaniah chapter 1 calls it a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of darkness, a day of desolation, a day of clouds and of gloom, a day of thick darkness, a day of the trumpet, a day of the battle cry. But it is the day of Jesus Christ when He comes back again. Day and night is a good thing. God made the sun, moon, and stars, and He called them good. God created the fish of the sea, and He called them good. God created the beasts of the field. He created man and said it was good. He said every tree that's good, that, that will bring forth good fruit. And when God was done, He looked back. He looked back over everything He created. He looked back over everything He made and He said, this is very good. And you see, that's why it's all the more stunning. That's why it's all the more shocking when this good God looks and says, hey, there's something that's not good. Or something that's not good. First, I want to give you the declaration. Let's look at verse 18. Then the Lord, uh, verse 18 in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Let's stop right there. Not good. 
You mean something's not good? That's all we've seen so far in creation. Every couple verses, God says this is good and this is good and this is good. And here we come to chapter 2 and this is the first thing in all of existence, in all of the universe where he says this is not good. What is lacking? What does God need to create in order that it would be good? It says it is not good for man to be alone. Well, there you have it. There you have it. That's what's not good. Okay. So here's the question. Why is it not good for man to be alone? There are a, a, a multitude of reasons, but let me give you just three reasons why it's not good for man to be alone. Number one, if man is alone, where's children going to come from? Where's children going to come from if man is alone? Man cannot by himself produce the children that, that God wants us to have. You see, it's part of God's plan that we fill the earth. It's part of God's plan that we be fruitful and we multiply. God desires people to share His blessings with. He told the animals to multiply. He told the birds to multiply. How can man do that by himself? The second reason, I believe, is because it reflects his image. Now, this isn't a perfect illustration, but I want to show you today that Adam is made in the image and likeness of God, correct? Okay? Well, here's the thing. God himself is not a unitarian being. God is a trinity. Three persons in one true living God. So for Adam to reflect the image of God by himself is an incomplete picture. It's an incomplete picture. So when a man and woman unite in, in matrimony, unite in a marriage and become one flesh, this reflects the inner unity of our God. Number three, the first Adam needs a bride because the last Adam will have a bride. See, the last Adam is Christ, and his bride is the church. Without Eve, this is an incomplete picture of who Christ will become for us. So without Eve, we do not see the church. We don't. God says, hey, it's an incomplete picture. Let's look back at verse number 18. I will make him a, a helper suitable for him. Now, I want you to notice that he didn't make Eve right away. Instead, he, he made Adam name all the animals, and Adam said, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a cow, that's a, that's a camel, and, and we'll get back to that in, in just a minute. But, but he formed all of these things, and, and Adam went through all of these things, and they were unsuitable for him. Adam said, there's no match for me, there's nobody that shares my nature. Adam needed a help suitable. And you know, different translations of the Bible, they translate this idea in a variety of ways, but essentially it's, it's the same in each of them. Some translations call it a help meet, and that is two words, not one word, a help meet. Some say a companion. Some say a helper suitable. But you know what my favorite translation is? My favorite translation of this is in the New King James, where it says, a helper comparable to him. 
You see, God gives the agenda to man, and then man and woman work together to fulfill it. Man has the responsibility, and man has the accountability to be the leader of the home. But that does not mean that the man does not help the woman. We see this all too often, and we see it way too much, and it's very sad but true. A true leader will, of course, help those who, are, uh, who he is leading. That he will help those who are helping him. But we hear that, that the woman is the helper. And they, I, all I did was read scripture. We hear that the woman is the helper, and sometimes we get our, our feathers ruffled a little bit at that. But see, the thing is, is we only see helping as a position of inferiority if we think how the world thinks. Because that's not what Jesus taught. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus considers the, the, the person in the position of service high in his sight. How did Jesus teach it? He says those who are least will be greatest and those who are greatest will be the least. Man is incomplete without woman. And this isn't to point out Eve's insufficiency. This is to point out Adam's inadequacy. Woman was made to meet man's deficiency. I am lost without her. I can't do it. And God knew that Adam could not do it alone. And that's why I like the word comparable. I like that word because woman is equal to man. A woman is a helper comparable to man. She, be, she should be considered as such and honored as such. A woman or a wife cannot be regarded as a mere worker or a mere tool, but instead an equal partner in grace and equal as a human being. Look, just because you have a leader does not make that leader, that does not make you less than that leader. Just because you have a leader does not make you less. Think about what Jesus said on the earth. Jesus submitted to the authority of his father, but it made him no less God. First we have the declaration, next we're going to have the investigation. Let's read verses 19 and 20. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the, the man gives names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. You know, having just created Adam you would think that the very next thing that he would create would be Eve. But he didn't. Instead, we get this story of Adam naming all the animals. Just imagine God says to Adam, Adam, you need a helper suitable for you. So I'm going to let you look at all of these other animals, and I want you to tell me what you think. And so Adam starts naming the animals. That's a goat. That's a dog. That's a cow, that's a camel, that's a cardinal. And, and Adam gets done and God says, Adam, what do you think? And Adam says, nah, no, that's okay. Thanks, but no thanks. 
listen, there, there's no one here that's suitable for me. There's no one here like me. There's no one here that shares my nature. But you see, when, when God was letting Adam name the animals, He was doing more than, than just letting him name the animals. God's actually training Adam to be a companion. God is preparing Adam to, for his marriage. Because as he's naming these animals, he sees Mr. and Mrs. Crocodile. He sees Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe. He sees Mr. and Mrs. Eagle. He sees male and female because from the beginning, that is God's plan. Male and female, that is the plan of God. Anything other than that goes against the plan of God. Adam saw all these animals. They all had mates. They're all in pairs, male and female, and he had nobody like that. What God is showing Adam is that you are incomplete. God is preparing Adam for the arrival of woman. You could basically say this is Adam's premarital counseling. On that long sixth day afternoon, Adam named all the animals, and there was no helper suitable that was found. So Adam was all alone. I want you to know that without a woman, he could never be in love. Without a wife, he could never be a husband. Without a queen, he could never be a king. Man, what a lonely existence Adam would have had. No one to laugh with. No one to share with. No one to run through the, the, the meadows with. All alone. Adam's learning a valuable lesson here. He's learning a valuable lesson. He's learning the limitations to his power. You see, what good is it to rule the world if you don't have anybody to share it with? There are men today who need to learn this lesson. Listen to me, men. I am not telling you not to be successful at your job. That is, do not take that, this, that's not what I'm saying. I am not telling you not to be successful. By all means, do success, be successful. The Bible says, whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord. Do your job, get out there, and, and, and be successful at your job. But what I see too many times is I see a man who's climbing the ladder of success. He's trying to grab that brass ring by all means necessary. And what he does is he takes his family and he puts his family on the back burner and just goes straight after that brass ring. And then one day when he finally climbs the ladder of success, and he grabs that brass ring, and he looks around, his family is gone. It's gone. Because they're not, it's not a priority. We really have to watch this in ministry, too. I could tell you story after story after story of pastors whose family is gone. If you have no family, you have no ministry. They put all their time into, uh, into the family, into the ministry, and let the family go by the wayside. 
I heard a preacher on Twitter the other day said, well, you know, uh, uh, I'm in the ministry and I'm trying to do a work for God, so that means sometimes I'm going to have to miss a baseball game. Sometimes I'm going to have to miss a piano recital. No! If you have no family, you have no ministry. Your family is a priority over everything. Your family's a priority. Don't get to the top of that ladder and look behind you and everything's gone because they were tired of waiting around for your attention. Number three, we've got the operation, verses 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam woke up from this deep sleep. He saw Eve and said, whoa, man. Now, as a pastor, I have to tell that joke every time I read that verse. They actually made a sign of paper at seminary saying that we do that. Look, it is impossible for me to read these verses and not think about Christ. When we read the Old Testament, we need to imagine in our heads the voice of Jesus asking the question, what do these Old Testament verses say about me? That's what we need to think about when we read the Old Testament. And when I read these verses, I think about the crucifixion. I, I, I think about Jesus and how you have the new Adam. And the new Adam has come to, to, to restore. He's come to restore that holiness. He's come to restore that righteousness. He's come to restore that innocence that we lost in the garden. And the moment of his death, his side is opened up by a Roman soldier, and out of that side flowed blood and water. And I, I, you know, I can't think about blood and water without thinking about how Jesus gives us life. He gives us blood and that, that redeems us, that, 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 that redeems us, and the water, it, it washes away, it washes away our sin. It, 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 we're washed and regenerated through the Holy Spirit. And these two things are symbolized in our ordinances. The water, the baptismal pool, the fruit of the vine of the Lord's Supper. This is Jesus giving of Himself. The water and the baptismal pool and the, and the wine and the Lord's Supper, these are symbols of how we receive life from Christ. He Himself, Jesus he creates the bride. So when you read of, of Adam's side being opened up and you read of that rib being taken out, I want you to think about the creation of all of us. See, God sent His own Son to go into the deep sleep of death. And from His side, He brings forth the blood and the water that creates the new Eve, the church. And that's why the church is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. I want you to notice that so far in this creation account, God has 
made, he's created, but he's not built anything. This is the first thing that God has built. He gives the greatest care to the bride. Eve is the only thing that's been handled with this much care so far. And Adam says, you are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Jesus and the bride, the church, is, is, is eternally inseparable. Jesus is as bound to the church as a head is to the body, as the bones are to the joints, as your veins are woven through your flesh. And in the first wedding ceremony, God presents the bride to the bridegroom. Just like in your wedding. You remember your wedding where the father walks the bride down the aisle and gives the bride away to the bridegroom. You see, from Adam and Eve's wedding to your wedding, it's a picture of Christ in the church. That's why your marriage is important. That's why your marriage is worth fighting for. That's why your marriage is worth putting the needs of the relationship above your own personal needs. God could have chosen anything to represent Christ in the church. But He chose the marriage of a husband and a wife. There's a beautiful Jewish tradition that says, woman wasn't taken from man's feet to be under him. Nor was she taken from man's head to be over him. But the woman was taken from the man's side so he could protect her and close to his heart where he could love her. Number four, we've got the organization, verses 24 and 25. And this is our text verse. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, when most people think of the ideal marriage, they, they think of the 1950s. They think of Ozzie and Harriet. They think of the parents of Leave It to Beaver. But the OG marriage was Adam and Eve. This is a marriage that God set up. And because God set it up, that's what He wants us to emulate. And these last two verses in chapter 2 is a commentary on marriage. Okay, It's a commentary on marriage. And what we see from this is that marriage is not a man-made institution that can be disregarded and, uh, whenever we like. God's plan is one man and one woman for life. Now, under the organization of marriage, number one, I want you to see it's an exclusive relationship. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. I like the King James where it says, and cleave unto his wife. Marriage involves leaving and cleaving. You got to leave your parents. You got to leave your parents emotionally. You got to leave your parents physically. You have to leave them financially in order to form a new family with your mate. You know, leaving is a one-time thing, but cleaving is a continuous thing. To cleave means to glue to another person. You are gluing yourself to that person. It is a constant every day. It is a lifetime of work. And when you're glued to somebody, that means nothing comes between you and your spouse. Not your parents, 
not your job, and I know this is going to hurt, not your kids. Your kids are not more important than your marriage relationship. They're not. That marriage to your husband and your wife is the most important relationship you have on this earth. You know what that also means? Cleaving. Cleaving also means you can't look around to see if you can get a better partner. There is no grass is greener on the other side. And what that means is, is you don't quit when things get tough. It, it means that you're going to have to talk things out. It means you're going to have to pray things out. It means you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to ask for forgiveness. You're going to have to admit when you're wrong. You're going to have to seek God's counsel in God's Word. And if you fail to leave and cleave, you're going to have some problems in your marriage. You're going to have problems. You have a new family. That doesn't mean you ignore your old one. It just means you've got new priorities. Number two, I want you to see this an intimate relationship. It says, and they shall become one flesh. Now this includes, but, but it's not limited to a physical relationship. See, out of a physical relationship is, is a profound fusion of two hearts, two minds, two bodies, two personalities, so intertwined that it's hard to see where one ends and the other begins. That's why physical relationships are not casual. They are sacred. In a good marriage, you know what the most important word is? Ours. Not yours and not mine. Couples live together for a long time. They begin to think alike. They begin to act alike. Sometimes they begin, even begin to look alike. You start a sentence, she finishes it. You're, you're thinking of a song in your head and he starts humming it. You see, one flesh doesn't begin with the body. One flesh begins with the heart. Now let me say this. If there's a lack of intimacy in your marriage, and I'm not talking about just physical intim intimacy, I'm talking about emotional intimacy. If there's a lack of, of intimacy in your marriage, it's all about the heart. It's selfishness, it's demandingness, it's entitlement, it's anger, it's unforgiveness, it, 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 it's bitterness, and it's wreaking havoc on your ability to enjoy the most beautiful intimacy that human beings can ever know inside of a marriage relationship or on the earth. And number three, I want you to see it's an open relationship. Verse 24, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Of course, they were literally naked, but this isn't literal. This is also, this is literal and it's figurative. And what does it describe? It describes a relationship where nothing is hidden because there's nothing to hide. Are you hiding something from your spouse? That's a red flag. Because Adam and Eve had transparency. Complete and total transparency. I don't like it when people stare at me. I know most of us are like that. If, if you're staring at me, you're kind of invading my personal, my personal space. People stare at me, you know, you know, I think they're trying to see something I don't want them to see or something like just the icky feeling. 
But you see, but in a marriage, we can let our guard down. Inside of a covenant relationship, a lifetime total commitment, a husband and life, a husband and wife can relax and feel comfortable together, and those walls slowly start to go down. You know why that is? In a marriage relationship, you can get some of the transparency that Adam and Eve had back in the garden. You can experience a little piece of the Garden of Eden in your marriage. And that's why you can be married 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50 years and still discover new things about your spouse because you're getting back inside of your marriage. You're getting back something that was lost in the garden. You're being open. Is it any mistake that the first miracle of Jesus Christ was at a wedding. A little boy was at Sunday school one day and Sunday school was over and church was over and the family got back in the car and the dad cranked the car up and started going down the road. And he looked back in the rearview mirror and looked back at, at, at his little boy and asked him, so son, what did you learn about in Sunday school today? Little boy looked at his dad and said, well, we learned about the time that Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. Well, the dad asked the little boy, said, okay, tell me what, uh, what, what, uh, the little boy asked, what did you, uh, the father asked, what did you learn from that story? Little boy thought for a second, and he said, if you're having a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. And you know, that's good advice. When Jesus is at the center of your marriage, no matter what else happens, you will truly live happily ever after. I want you to think about this. The only thing that God let Adam and Eve keep from the garden was their marriage. It was the only thing they got to take with them was their marriage. It's the only thing God let them keep. God took what was not good and gave us the good gift of marriage to make it good. I want to ask you a few questions today. Is your marriage worth fighting for? Number one, is your marriage a priority? Who's a priority in your life? Right under God, it should be your spouse. Who's a priority? Number two question I want to ask... Um, is there a lack of intimacy in your marriage? Not only physically, but emotionally? Maybe there's some selfishness there. And are you hiding something? Because, man, if, you're, if, you're, if your husband-wife marriage relationship isn't open and transparent, and you're trying to hide stuff from each other, you are missing out on the, what, that little piece of the garden we can take with us. Is your marriage worth fighting for? Answer is yes.